Welcome to The Aggregate, hosted by Kinetic Ventures. This is a project based on the learnings from Startup DNA and the founder's journey. On today's episode, we talk with Gary Darna, founder of CompleteSet, as he shares his journey and learnings. Some interesting things you'll hear from Gary because he has startup experience in both Silicon Valley and the Midwest, as well as working for some of the world's largest companies, such as Kroger and Procter & Gamble. Gary, you there? Yeah, I am. Hey, Brad. Hey, good to hear from you. I We were chit-chatting just a little bit, but uh, I really meant it. I am... I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I'm really excited. I mean, as you know, I've been writing a lot of articles recently about just my startup experience, but uh, I haven't done a podcast in years, so this is cool. Yeah, this this is cool. So, uh, for anyone listening, I, why don't we just kind of start? Um, I always thought that how we met was, and what. Um, the premise that we met under was, was super interesting. So, you know, why don't you tell me your recollection of that? If I recall correctly, we were introduced by one of my former entrepreneurship professors, uh, Dr. Rodney D'Souza, who uh, I met while I was a student at Northern Kentucky University in their um, entrepreneurship program. And at the time, I, you know, had an early stage company and the name of the company was called Complete Set. And he thought that you and your, at the time, uh, new fund, Kinetic Ventures, would be interested in at least hearing, uh, you know, what we were working on. And I think at first it started as a kind of an exploratory conversation just to get to know each other and mainly for you to see like what one of the companies locally was working on. Um, And then also for me to get practice on raising money because at the time I really was inexperienced with that process. And so, you know, you provided me advice and turned out that you actually, if I recall correctly, uh, ended up being really interested in investing yourself. Yeah, you know, nice shout out to our poor buddy, you know, Rodney, I don't know if you know this, Gary, but he lives in Texas right now. Yes, yes, I I do know that he moved down there, but uh, I saw the other day he replied to a a tweet of mine. So I, I think he has electricity and stuff, fortunately. Yeah, I was I've been texting him a little bit. So uh, hopefully he he and the rest of that state, you know, gets gets back on track. But yeah, I remember that day Rodney had um, they were starting to do really good things at uh, the NKU entrepreneurship program. And I had I had taken a look at some of the companies before. And then he he asked me to take a look. And it was under that exact premise of, hey, you know, you know, Gary May. may raise some money because I think you had an acquisition offer already. And so the question was, do you raise money or do you, you know, do you get acquired by this, this company and, and go down that path? And um, my expectations were really low coming. I mean, they just were, you know, local or, yeah. you know, whatever that bias was, you know, university driven. And, um, you know, you came in and you had this marketplace, um, you know, idea um, for a, for a, you know, customer segment that it hit me really good. And I remember saying like something like, oh my gosh, you know, don't sell. I, I, I think you got something here. 
Yeah, and it was actually before you you guys had an office and everything. I mean, it was pretty early in the history of Kinetic um, as well, which is cool to think back on. It 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 really is, and that was I, and I could be mistaken, but I feel like it was cold weather, you know, back then too. It might have been a might have been a, a February meeting, but yeah, that that felt you know when I look back on it, kind of like the the beginning of of both of us, and so. I guess you took me up on the offer and then we we started a little seed round and and uh why don't you tell me what happened over that? Yeah, so I think this was maybe like late twenty or sometime in twenty fifteen, I think it was that we, yeah. we met. And then um, you know, once Kinetic got involved, really things started to transform the company. I mean, after that, I think it was maybe six months or so, we were accepted into uh, Techstars, uh, the Chicago location. Uh, we went through that program in 2016, summer 2016, so moved up to Chicago for about four months uh, during the course of that program. And I definitely think that having you know the backing of, of a fund, because at the time we had only raised money from angel investors, uh, that was really helpful because it I think legitimized what we were working on, um, gave us a little bit more traction to talk about during the interview process with uh, Techstars uh, managing directors and others that are part of that program. Um, and, you know, we went through that program. It was really transformative for the company and for me as a founder. I learned so much and kind of regretted not being in a program sooner because there were things that maybe I would have done differently had I had that experience sooner in our journey. Um, but after going through that and graduating in September of 2016, which, if you recall, that, that same month uh, around that time is when my first son was born. So it was a pretty chaotic uh, time period to be a new father while a startup founder. And you actually came to Chicago to introduce us during the, um, uh, the demo day presentation. I was so I was so nervous. You know, a lot of people probably don't know this about me by my professional behavior, but I'm pretty introverted. And the idea of going on stage at the House of Blues in Chicago and introducing anyone for anything uh, was, was pretty stressful. And, and I can tell you, I don't remember what time of day it was, but the second I was done with that, I sat in the back with my buddy Kyle and uh, I poured a beer right away. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, you and me both, it, you know, it was definitely... Um, for me to a stressful experience doing that presentation. I mean, there was over 400 people, if I recall correctly, in the audience. Um, and that venue was just so huge, right? It, it had multiple floors of people watching you. Um, but really, once you had practiced it, like in the case of us, we were doing a presentation that we had practiced literally over 100 times at that point. So I pretty much had it memorized, um, but still, you know, wanting to deliver it really well um, and make a compelling case for why people should take an interest in our company was amongst all the other great companies that were presenting. Uh, you know, it was it was a challenge, but I think like that alone, that part of the process, it really made me a better entrepreneur, um, better business person, because once you've made a presentation in front of 400, 500 people, you know, doing a presentation for 50 people or 100 people or something in a normal course of your days, um, it is much easier, I have found. You know, I was, I'm just curious. I don't, I don't remember if I asked you this or not, but when you asked me to present, I was 
I was surprised and I don't, I don't necessarily know why I was surprised. No one ever asked me to do anything like that before. Um, and I was certainly honored. I mean, why did you ask me to, for me to be your presenter? I mean, I think there was a few reasons. Um, first, you know, you weren't just an individual investor. You represented a, a group of investors. So I really like that aspect of it. Um, also, you really understood what we were doing, like why we started the company. You were excited about it, just like we were. And I wanted that enthusiasm to come through our our introducing uh, partner, right? Uh, you know, I didn't want it to just be someone we had met recently. I wanted someone who had kind of seen our journey uh, during those early years. And you were definitely one of those people. And I thought also, you know, third reason that it would help Kinetic. Um, honestly, like I thought like it would put you up on a stage in front of other um, prominent investors in a different region um, from Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky and thought maybe that could help you as well. It did. I don't know if you remember or know all this. I mean, we, we have picked up some investment from Chicago uh, we launched an office in Chicago shortly after that, and we picked up one of our best performing portfolio companies from your Techstars class. Do you, do you remember? I, if I had to guess, it's LogicGate. Is that right? Yep, sure is. Yep. Yeah, I mean, huh. they're, they're a great company, great founders. I mean, they have definitely solved one of those, uh, I call them like boring problems, right? It's something that you only know about unless you're experiencing it yourself in a big company. And you know, at the time, I really didn't understand what they were working on because I was so consumed by like this B2C consumer social app that we were working on, a marketplace, really. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, in hindsight, I look back and it's like, wow, that, that was a brilliant idea because now they're, you know, have grown so huge. They've raised what, tens of like 20 million dollars. Um, and it's really cool to see that because I was there like when it was just the two founders and I think like one other person. Um, so to see that transformation is has been exciting. Have you kept up with anybody else uh, from your class, or just that the whole TechStars feel? Yeah, every once in a while, you know, I exchange emails or tweets, you know, with with some of the guys from the class, and um, you know, it's not been as often as I would probably like. I think it's difficult when I'm not up in Chicago, right? Even though now everyone's like remote for the most part. I think there's just something to be said about like that local startup ecosystem vibe that we were coming from a different state, although we were in the same region. Um, but yeah, I, I tried to just follow what they're doing. I know like GeoBit, for example, we're, um, my wife and I have one of those for our four-year-old. So we're a, a customer of theirs. And once again, it, you know, it's, it's cool to see something that like with GeoBit, I saw them actually testing a device like, doing the mechanical engineering and everything required to develop that, that device. And now to be able to put one on my, my son years later, who my wife was pregnant with during Techstars while they were building the device. I mean, it all kind of comes full circle. And so even though I might not talk to them, you know, as often as I would like, I'm, I'm definitely rooting for all the founders that are still going. I know some of the companies have unfortunately shut down since then, uh, including my own. Um, but, you know, the ones that are kept going have done a great job. You know, you, you, you've said it twice and it's just the most hilarious coincidence, maybe. So let's say you're the fifth um, founder that I've had a conversation with. And I know for a fact during the launch of 
each of everyone else's companies, everybody was having babies. Is that weird? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how that happens. I mean, it, it's funny because my wife and I always joked that because I had applied to Techstars before we got in, that this would be the time that I would finally get in. Like when you know our, we were expecting our first child. Um, and lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. And fortunately, you know, being in Chicago, it was still drivable. So it didn't feel so crazy. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely added a layer of anxiety during the program for me because it was like any moment I was expecting some phone call that I'd have to dart out of the room and, and just, you know, get back to Cincinnati. And fortunately, it wasn't quite that crazy, but it definitely uh, was, made the experience a little bit more unique, I think. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned something I want to ask about because it's something I think about a lot. You talked about how one of the parts of the Techstars program was you really practiced this presentation hundreds, if not not a thousand times. And, you know, post that, that just gave you the, the confidence to deliver it no matter what the audience was. So clearly it's a very, that just that activity is a very practical and a helpful activity for you or for other entrepreneurs. Now I'll flip it over and I'll say where we are today at, at Kinetic, we don't personally find it very valuable to receive a pitch presentation at all um, from the founders for that very reason, because it's so polished and practiced, everybody looks good and, and we can't really get to the, get to the, the crux of that. So I'm just curious if you've got any thoughts or opinions on that. Well, another thing that I learned uh, to do really well in Techstars, thanks to our, our managing director at the time, uh, Troy Hennikoff, was really investing time in financial modeling. And I think that you're right. Like the pitch, it's very easy to make it almost theatrical. Um, you know, it's like you're giving this really polished and eloquent presentation about why you started a company, what problem you're solving, the market. And it's also very formulaic, right? It's pretty much the same structure for everyone's pitch in general. Of course, there are exceptions. Um, but what I think any business boils down to is just the dollars and cents. Like, how is it going to make money? Especially in the Midwest startup ecosystems, I feel like we put even more emphasis on that, even at the early stages. And something that I didn't know how to do super well when I came into Techstars was financial modeling. You know, being able to break down our business model into unit economics to figure out how much it costs to deliver our product or service. And since we had such great mentorship in that, it's something that I really think many companies need to be great at at the early stages is to understand all those numbers. And I admittedly didn't understand them well enough even going into Techstars. And so that's something that I took away from it as well. And I think being able to share those numbers, like tell a story with data about your business model is probably more important than being able to effectively pitch it uh, to an investor or press or whoever. So you mentioned the, the, the Midwest and we'll, we'll use that as a generic term for a let's call it the Midwest, the Great Lakes and the southeastern part of, you know, really middle America. And so you're you're suggesting that, that fundraising and investor expectations are different than, say, California? I think so. I mean, I, I 
don't have data off the top of my head to prove that that is the case, but just in reading a lot of technology news and, you know, about startups across the country, you see these stories where founders are able to raise, you know, a million dollars pre-seed. They have no product. Maybe, maybe they have a prototype, but they don't have like customers or revenue and they're able to get 500,000 up to maybe even $2 million before they have that traction. And some of that's maybe just because there's more investors. Um, but it's, I think, telling when, you know, here, my experience was I was continually told, like, I need more traction, more traction, more traction. Like, I have to prove myself to an extent that was, I felt like at the time, greater. And even now, looking back, uh, greater than other parts of the country. And in some ways, I think that hindered the company. Um, you know, the ultimate outcome, unfortunate as it is, there's a number of reasons for it. As you know, I wrote a whole lengthy article about it. Um, but I think part of it was that we were just undercapitalized and it's, it was difficult to start a, like a consumer marketplace in our part of the country. I felt like not impossible, but more difficult than probably elsewhere. I agree with you. I, you know, we experience this and, it, and it's one of the considerations that, you know, we take into, you know, we look at with an investment while I don't necessarily believe in the way that the coast funds things all the time. But at the same time, if we don't have an ecosystem or community that that can, you know, really help a technology startup, you know, be successful, whether that's uh, paid pilots from, you know, an anchor, big strategic, or a bunch of investors, you know, put money in. And I'll tell you what I saw with your company. This will be interesting what you think. Undercapitalized, maybe, but I would say if the capital would have came in, let, let's, I don't know, you tell me over the two, 2.5 rounds of funding, I always, I couldn't stand how long the fundraising cycle was. So let's say we did 1.5 million in one of the rounds. I can't even remember, but I felt like it was six, seven months and that you were on the road all the time and you couldn't work on your business. You were just you know, presenting and following up with diligence. And to me, watching that happen, and I wish I could have been more helpful, but I just, I felt like money was leaving the door every day because we still had, had payroll. But so yeah. I would, I would even say it's not just, it's not just the amount of capital, it's the pace at which capital comes into a company, you know, and the activities that a founder does. I mean, what do you yeah. remember all that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, when we started a company in 2012 and it was not until just to give you an idea of how long this took place it was not until november of 2014 that we closed our first seed round uh, which was six hundred and fifty thousand dollars from a group of about 10 angel investors uh, in kentucky and that shows you right there like during that course of that time i wasn't actively raising money the entire time but it still was two years where my co-founder and I essentially bootstrapped the business. Um, you know, we didn't have other jobs. We worked on it pretty much full time. He was a student at the time. Um, but then even after we raised that money and then we went to raise additional capital um, in 2015, it wasn't until I think April or March of 2016 that we were able to close that second 
like seed extension or, or I don't know what we called it at the time, but there was a, a second seed round effectively. Um, and, you know, that ended up being like a six month process. So I think that you're right that the time it takes, the number of meetings it takes to get to a yes uh, with some investors is problematic. Um, you know, I, I, just, I don't think that's the only reason, but I do think that is a contributing factor because we'd never really had, like we raised $2 million or $2.1 million over the lifetime of the company. And it seems like a lot of money to like an individual, but to build a consumer marketplace, that's a small amount of capital and it came in chunks, right? There, there was not a windfall of cash. Like we didn't just get $2 million and then sold, okay, go execute for 18 months. I was, to your point, constantly fundraising, which... Really, that's, you know, often the advice you get from other founders, especially at the early stages, is that you pretty much are always fundraising. Even if you don't have a round open, you're developing relationships um, to lead to that next round. But because we were a small team and there was only two co-founders, myself included, you know, there was no one else really steering the ship when I was out raising money. That was took up 80, 90 percent of my time was just constantly following up with people, get, getting meetings, getting interested productions. Um, but that's part of the process, unfortunately. But I do feel like some investors could move faster. Either tell me no, which is something I always appreciated about Kinetic is that you and Kyle are pretty upfront, right? You'll just say like, no, we pass. Um, and I think that's helpful because it allows the founder to get on with finding another investor that maybe is a better fit for their company. Yeah, those was, that was painful times for me. I, I, I felt like that you mentioned it as chunks. As each it's each chunk came in, it was already spent because you know it, it just the stuff took too long. And whether the company would have made it with three million in a single round or not, you know, maybe we'll never know. But it 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 never felt like it it had that fair shot. So I, I would say, I, you know, I don't know. Do you feel that you learned enough, or or potentially will provide enough? You know stayed around the ecosystem you know you have uh, many 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 more years of, of work and great things ahead of you do you think going through that experience experience was overall worth it and, and the right decision to take that money or you think you should have just sold the company when you had the chance i do think it was the right decision um because going through that full process i feel like in a way i i have told people before i feel like i've almost earned an mba doing that um and you know not officially obviously but um i learned so much about just how to hire people and you know attract talent how to raise money i didn't know how to do that before how to build financial models how to do a great presentation um so personally and professionally i benefited tremendously from it i, I feel like even though you know, sadly, the outcome was very difficult. Like it was a very difficult experience for me to uh, shut down the company because, you know, it really was an extension of myself, like a, a culmination of everything like I was personally and professionally interested in. And I really thought, truly believed that I was the right person to solve the problem that the company was, was trying to. And so going through that experience of starting a company that was just an idea back in 2011, finding a co-founder, which was a very difficult process, um, about eight months later, 
two years of bootstrapping, raising $2.1 million, hiring, you know, over a dozen people, all that stuff made me better at what I do today. And I think a more valuable team member, whether to a big company or especially to a startup. So I wouldn't, so, I wouldn't change it. So you, so company financially fails and then, then what you do? So the company shut down. I you know notified all the employees on January 12th of 2018. I mean, if that's any indication of how difficult it was, I can remember the exact day uh, that I had to do it. Um, and then after that, I immediately, you know, being the sole income for my family, um, I, you know, had to find a job, right? I had to go get income somewhere because just like my team, I had to uh, find a new position. Um, and, you know, I lost my job too during, during that process. And so in addition to winding down the company, like operationally, which included selling, I think it was over $14,000 worth of physical assets, chairs, desks, computers, like, I mean, you name it, there was a lot of stuff that the company owned um, in the grand scheme of things, not that much, but um, I sold all that stuff, anything I could. I mean, I even sold a coffee table for $5, um, like a Ikea one, uh, so I could get back whatever money I could to pay off any final expenses that the company could afford to. Uh, so that was just, it was like, you know, digging your own grave, basically, like, you know, the company was dead. And now I have to sit here and toil over it for for months. I mean, it took almost the entire year of 2018 to fully dissolve the company. Um, fortunately, I was able to get a new position. Uh, about a month later, I started at Procter & Gamble as a senior product manager, uh, leading their beauty care uh, technology team that was working on an app called Olay Skin Advisor. Um, so I went from working on a B to C you know, marketplace to working on an e-commerce app that was somewhat experimental for one of the world's largest um, consumer packaged good companies. And I specifically remember wanting to work at a big company because prior to that experience um, at P&G, I had never worked at a large company. In fact, I'd never really worked at any company other than summer jobs in high school that I didn't start. So I was always an entrepreneur, even from when I was like 18 years old, um, I was always doing something entrepreneurial, whether it was web development for clients or selling uh, t-shirts during college, uh, which helped pay for part of my tuition. You know, I always found myself to be very much a founder. And so it was an experience I wanted to have. I wanted to go into a big company and learn like, how do they work? Like just how do people behave in a big company? How do they make buying decisions? How do they build products inside of a large organization? And so that experience too was really helpful. Um, but I think a lot of people were super surprised when, uh, you know, knowing me that I went to a big company after starting so many other things, um, but it was intentional. Right. There, there was not I just wanted to go to an easy job like I, I wanted to actually experience what it is like to work at a larger company, knowing that when I go to start another company, I will probably go the route of a, a company like what Logic Gate has built. You know, they have made a product that has that recurring revenue. It's a B2B focused business. And I say that because I feel like that's something that I can do more effectively here in the Midwest. 
uh, based on what investors are interested in, what the talent is familiar with. And so I wanted to have that experience of actually being in a big company that I may eventually sell to. You know, I've on the five of these we've done, it's so funny. And maybe this is a Cincinnati ecosystem thing, but the story is like start company, have baby, get funded, company fails, go work for Procter and Gamble. I do you think do you think P and G knows that they're like uh you know the, the basket that catches recovering founders? I, you know, I, I don't know of that many other, there's a few that I know of that, you know, went there after their companies uh, failed or they sold them in some cases. Um, but yeah, I think that's actually a good thing. I think we need more of that because we need a place where an entrepreneur whose company unfortunately failed to have that soft landing essentially. Yeah. And the reality is, is that we just don't have enough startups here where like in the Valley, out in you know San Francisco and, and Mountain View and all of that, that they have so many early stage companies that you can essentially just bounce from one to the other. If one fails, you just go join another early stage team that maybe has you know a seed or a Series A round closed, and that's just not the case here. There's only so many companies early stage to choose from. So that was another contributing factor to my decision was that hey, I mean, like what startups were there really for me to go to? at that time that, you know, were here and that could pay me a reasonable salary. And I think that there's a lot of people, yes, that have gone, especially not just to P&D, but also to Kroger, um, specifically their Kroger technology and uh, digital division or part of the company uh, for that very reason, because they can use those uh, technology skills, presentation skills, and, and really get better professionally and think about their next move, right? Uh, during that time. I think it's a, it's what you're describing. Something I think about a lot. I think it's uh, the, probably the number one problem of the startup sensei ecosystem is wh where do you, you know, inevitably, you know, tons and tons of startups are not going to work out for whatever reason, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the founder or the founding teams uh, and the key employees are not, super effective or have tremendous potential. And when those resources leave the startup ecosystem, that that hurts, you know, overall. And so not having opportunities to uh, recycle, I guess, for a better word, you know, yeah. gifted founders, I just, that's, that's something worth, worth solvable. Um, and we've, and we've watched that. I, from my perspective, there's almost a sense of shame, you know, yeah. like, I, I'm, I failed. And then right. I, you know, I mean, I will tell you too, I, you're, you know, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but your actions post, hey, we're done, uh, you know, just to pay off even unsecured creditors, um, that, that was really looked upon very highly uh, amongst a lot of the investors. And I will tell you, I don't know why, but a lot of founders, uh, maybe they are ashamed. They tuck tail and run. They leave the city. Or I've even seen founders that literally can't come to grips. They can't even bankrupt their own company. They just leave a website up and act like mm. it never happened. Yeah, crazy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I've seen some of that just through the grapevine. I've heard about it. Um, 
you know, the way I look at it, or as certainly at the time, the way I was thinking of it was just like, hey, I'm I'm not ashamed of anything that happened, right? Yes, there were some decisions that I made or that our, my team made that maybe we would have done differently in hindsight. But you no, know, we made the best decisions that we could at the time with the information that we had at the time. And so I never felt embarrassed by it. Was I frustrated? Yes. You know, was I disappointed? Of course. But I was never ashamed. I was was not going to just disappear and move to a different city or state. I understand why people do that. It is a difficult time when your company fails, especially the longer you've worked on it. It's one thing if you know you worked on it for six months and realized this isn't going to work. Uh, but I worked on it for almost six years, um, which again, in hindsight, I would say is like that was too, probably too long. Like I probably should have figured out sooner that what we were doing wasn't going to work and completely pivot into something different. Um, but, you know, there was an element of persistence. I just, I thought that like, we had indicators that were promising and then we had some that were not so promising. And so, yeah, I've seen that myself. I've seen founders that the company failed and there's been some really unfortunate actions that take place because of that. Like they just don't finish the job. Right. And, and People don't think about that when they start a company. They think of formation of the entity, the C Corp or the LLC, the raising of money, hiring your first employees. But what no one really ever wants to think or talk about is what happens if this fails? What exactly do you do once the company fails? And it's funny that no one talks about it because it happens more often than companies being successful. Successful being they get acquired or the IPO or something. And such a such a large percentage fail, yet no one really talks about that aspect. And so I've tried to be very open about the events. Um, I've published an article about it. I've spoken at multiple events, and I've made myself vulnerable and, and open to the community because my hope is that my experience would encourage other people to see that look, it's not the end of the world. If the company fails, you know you can move on. There's something else that can that can come from it. And I think how you handle those last days of the company's existence are just as important as how you handle the first days of its existence. You only get one reputation, and it's got this funny knack for following you around according to the behaviors and actions you do. Not in good times. Everybody's good in good times. But that character really shows in, in the rough times, you know, for our part. You know, we, I love the open, authentic, you know, vulnerability. You're right. Failure happens. It doesn't matter if you're a founder or you're an investor or a venture capitalist or whatever. You're, you're just this business, uh, investing in innovative companies and technologies. You just, you have more strikeouts, you know, than, than hits. And in, in a baseball, yep. you, you hit 30% and you're like a freaking hero. Yep. And um, but we really frown upon that for, for our part. We've left every company name on our portfolio on the website, you know, versus hiding our failures. Right. And I will I know of quite a few um, funds that they just can't come to grips with letting anyone see that they've actually allocated capital to some endeavor that has not been successful. And I always thought that was curious choice. You know, like wow, here's my 25 investments, and they they've all IPO'd. Like so. the thing is, is like you're just like the founder. You guys being early stage investors, you're operating with limited information. So at the end of the day, like 
you can't have a hundred percent success rate. In fact, if you do, then you're probably being too conservative. I mean, innovation requires failure. Um, like at Kroger, which is what I did after Procter and Gamble, um, I helped set up their A/B testing program, um, including building an experimentation platform. And something that was really interesting was that building the actual product, the technology to instrument and measure the test was actually easier in many ways in getting my colleagues, product managers, product designers, and engineers to accept the reality that many experiments you run, like an A-B test on our website or app, they're going to fail. Like not fail in the sense that you didn't collect any data, but fail in the sense that your hypothesis was disproven. And it's just a rationale. It's like a mentality. It's, it's a way of thinking. You have to be okay with trying a lot of different things and a large percentage of them not working out. And this is something that Amazon does really well. And I would always explain this to my Kroger folks that I would talk to is that, you know, one of the reasons why they are how they are and Amazon is so successful is not because they have a crystal ball that they can predict the future, just like you as an investor don't have a, a crystal ball. It's because they just try a lot of things. They're not afraid to fail. They just tried crazy ideas and, and measure them. And then they're able to benchmark them against other prior successes or uh, variations of that experiment. And so that experience too helped me think differently about when I'm going forward, if I were to start a new company in the future, what are like the low hanging fruit, the early experiments I can run to validate a business idea? And you as an investor or me as a potential founder in the future, again, uh, you know, that's just something I think we have to think about is use all the data we have and make the best informed decision that we can and be okay with the outcome and don't try to hide it if it's not the outcome that is considered a resounding success. I got to ask about it because you've, you've, you know, you spend 15 or so years of your life as working for yourself, entrepreneur, keeping the lights on all, you know, many different types of an entrepreneur to working for two of the largest corporations in the world who happen yeah. to be in your in your backyard. How different is it from an innovation or a mindset standpoint? Uh, what you know, what were the challenges or frustrations or joys if, if you had any, you know, trying to, you know, keep your entrepreneurship stripes while you worked at those organizations? What was that like? So I was very fortunate that in both organizations, both Procter and Gamble and at Kroger Technology and Digital that I was able to work on like entrepreneurial teams. So in a way, I was this, this term that I learned back in, in college called an intrapreneur. So I would actually help solve problems within the organization. Uh, an example of that, as I mentioned just earlier, was setting up that A-B testing program for Kroger. It's something that prior attempts failed to do um, for one reason or another. And getting that up and running required a lot of like creative thinking, right? We didn't have a lot of resources. It was a small team uh, and I had to figure out how to evangelize it, like how to sell not only the idea that we needed to build our own software, but the idea that you should run a lot of tests and a lot of them are going to fail, but they're not worthless. You're just learning something from it. But there were other aspects of my experience working at those two companies that weren't very frustrating for me as someone who's more entrepreneurial. And a large part of it was just how politically motivated a lot of the 
decisions and, and behaviors of colleagues are at an organization like that. Um, I found that I was often very frustrated by also the pace that things move. Um, you know, as a great example, there's a project I was working on at, at Kroger that I kind of like resumed it after it had stopped for about a year. Come to find out that they had actually started a project two years prior. So it, it took years to do something that really shouldn't have taken that long, but it's just because of so many decision makers and just the way that things operate in a large organization like that, uh, things just tend to progress more slowly. And it's understandable to a degree because there's more on the line, right? Like Kroger is doing hundreds of millions of dollars, I believe in a week, um, just in e-commerce revenue. So you can't mess things up. Um, you know, and expect it to go well. Um, but yeah, for me, I realized in those three years that I'm just more suited for that early stage environment because I thrive with ambiguity uh, and being able to like figure out the maze of different uh, solutions or problems that you're trying to work through at, in that environment. Um, and I, I don't love the aspect of just waiting around like I, I'm very action oriented so I just try things and try to move quickly and sometimes in a large organization that can actually harm you like from a career progression standpoint um, like I was always pushing us to move faster and, and to learn quickly and try different things uh, and and not everyone looked upon that favorably favorably so I, I think for me I'm definitely more of the entrepreneurial type um, I think there's advantages for people like me to be in a big organization like that. I would often joke that I felt like I was on vacation because um, even the most stressful days being an employee at a big company paled in comparison to being a startup CEO. Because the reality is that no matter how good or, or bad of a job I did in that day, the company was still going to be there tomorrow. Whereas with a early stage company, especially as a founder, every decision you make, it feels almost like it's some existential threat that like if this goes badly, this could kill the entire company. Everyone's going to lose their jobs and it's going to be all my fault. And so you don't have that pressure. And once that pressure has been lifted off of you, I, and I felt like it was almost too easy. And I'm not I don't say that to be arrogant, like I, legitimately, I just felt like it for me. It was not challenging enough working at a, a larger established company. Do you think it'd be, I love this topic and I, and I've, I don't know if you heard me, I was just laughing because I, I just relate so much. And I think the founder, you know, I'm a five-time founder, you know, Kinetic was a startup. You were, you were there at the beginning. And when you're managing resources beyond your control, it's terrifying and just horribly stressful. Would you say, in your opinion, like if you've managed a startup, founded a startup, ran a startup, CEO, uh, do you think it would be easier for founders from a stress and ability to get the job done standpoint to go into a Fortune 500? Or do you think someone who's worked in a Fortune 500 for 20 years uh, and they've gained all that knowledge of industry or would it be easier for them to leave and now start a startup? And that is a great question. It's not something I've actually thought about before. You know, I, I'm not really sure. 
you know, I've now done both in, in a way. I've worked at, at both types of companies. If I had to guess, just without deep thought into the subject, I would say it's probably harder for someone that has worked at a large company for a long time, like their entire career, to leave that and go be a founder of a company. Um, and not so much because they don't have resources. I, I think in some ways it'd be actually be easier because they have a wide, wider network, presumably, of people uh, they could lean on. But I think that what they'd have to really get used to is the fact that when you start a company early on, like you do a little bit of everything. There's no specialization in the early stages. When you have less than 10 employees, like you as a founder and certainly the CEO, you're doing a lot of different jobs and you have to be comfortable with that. And I think the other thing they would have to get used to is that your mind never really turns off as an entrepreneur. I know there's been a lot of discussion about this in, in recent years. It's like the mental health aspect of, of being an entrepreneur. Um, but, you know, when you're an employee somewhere, it's easy to, you know, have, have your weekend, come home at five o'clock and just turn off. And I think that's much more difficult to do as an entrepreneur because it feels like so much is riding on your shoulders at any given time. It certainly is necessary. Um, but I think that's something that would take a lot of getting used to for someone who's had that that luxury almost, right? They've they've lived in a different environment where they can just turn off at the end of the day. Uh, you know, my my wife would joke when I was an entrepreneur if, if I had like an off button because I would constantly my gears would be turning constantly about how to make something better or some decision that needed to be made. Whether it was seven o'clock at night or seven in the morning, I would constantly be thinking about my business. And that's not something that everyone is equipped to do, um, I think. I, I love it. You're, you're a, I've, I've enjoyed and I'm enjoying this conversation. Let me, let me ask you this as we're running uh, out of time. And I know we have got a lot more to talk about. I mean, uh, would you do another one of these with me? Another another uh, podcast interview? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I I'm learning a lot just listening to you, and uh, I think there's some wisdom uh, in the experiences that you've had that would really benefit um, our ecosystem. So, being that you're willing to do another one, I know we've not even gotten around to what you're doing today. We'll make that a big part. But if I was to give you a 30 seconds and a parting comment, what would you like to say? Well, I just would like to say thank you, you to you, Brad, um, you know, not only for this interview, but for believing in me early on. Um, you know, I know the outcome of the company uh, wasn't what we had hoped, but it really meant a lot to me that you rooted for us, um, you know, the whole whole way. Um, you know, it was difficult experience at the end, but I appreciate that you continue to support, you know, me and, and take an interest in what I'm doing today. Um, and then to the other founders that may be listening, I just can, you know, encourage you to to keep going. And, um, you know, if you do run into a, a failed company, that's okay. It's not the end of the road. You can start again. And I encourage you to do that. Don't let one failure define your entire career. And if when all else fails, go work for Procter & Gamble. <laughs> yes, you could do that too. <laughs> All right, Gary, good to talk to you. I really appreciate it today. You too.